Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 11th, 2020. I am John Pophortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So, 19 years after 9-11, and Christine, you are... uh, Fit to be tied about something going on on this uh, anniversary of nine eleven. Can you? Uh, yes. Let us, okay. Uh, know so about it? I was I was telling you guys just before we started recording. Um, so every year on nine eleven, I actually sit my kids down. They were born after nine eleven, and we talk a little bit about it. We talk about what happened, um, and I do that because first of all, I was in Washington D.C. and I have extremely uh, strong memories of this. I know people who died. I know people whose lives were at risk as all of you guys in New York do as well. And I, but, but mainly because it was, it was for, uh, for a lot of us, for a lot of Americans, a, a very uh, crucial moment in our history. So what I woke up to this morning that was so annoying is it's now being used to compare to COVID deaths. And yes, more people have tragically died of the, uh, of COVID than died in 9-11. But to compare the two as, as kind of Im- events, is, is deeply wrong and it, comparing apples to oranges. And it's upsetting for this reason. 9-11 was a planned, concerted attack on our way of life that was uh, devised and executed by people who hoped to uh, bring down our nation and everything it stood for. Very clear cut. Um, that is not what's going on with a pandemic. And that what upsets me is that every death is a tragedy but to compare the tragedies themselves in this way is is ineffectual and and to me offensive because it suggests that um, they are somehow morally equal in in the damage that they hope to inflict and it imposes a motive on something that is a disease in in and in that way kind of excuses in some ways or 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 weakens. Uh, the true motive of the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11. So it just annoys me. And I might be an outlier here, but I don't even like the, com- the body count comparisons. It just, it just annoys me. So I might be the only one, but there, now I've said my piece. <laughs> You're hardly the only one. I think it's probably the same. I mean, it's this, it's a species of the sort of clever commentary that we've seen over the last few months comparing COVID death counts to the body counts from Vietnam and the body counts from World War II and saying, you know, we've, we've had like four uh, Tet offensives in the last week, something like that, which just doesn't make a lot of sense unless your objective is only to inflame passions, um, which is basically everybody's objective these days. So I guess it's effective in that sense. Well, you know, um, there is a worldwide problem or classic problem with, uh, using disease as a metaphor for other things. Um, famously, Susan Sontag, the critic, said that the white race was the cancer of human history. And then 10 years later, when she found herself uh, suffering at a rather young age from cancer, she was horrified to think that she had done this, that she had somehow used a, you know, uh, a lifeless, thing uh, to stand in for something with agency and purpose um, and to use, you know, and to sort of um, uh, basically oddly enough belittle uh, the seriousness of, of, of a disease and the, and the utter uh, lack of guilt uh, that 
attains to somebody who gets cancer and this notion somehow that, you know, you can, you can, you, you can use these metaphors, uh, and you're using them in a, in a, in a manner that is, uh, in the, in the end, sort of anti-human or anti-humane. But there is um, a, a level of guilt that's imposed on people who get COVID, right? There is now a social stigma around it to the extent that if you've contracted this disease, you did something bad. You did something wrong. You went outside. Well, not, not, if you're, not if you're 80, not if you're 80, not if you're in a nursing home, all of that. Maybe now that's true six or seven months later. Um, but, but certainly, uh, you know, we, we, we've spent our entire uh, lives uh, really, uh, I mean, I'm almost 60. And the, the idea of making sure that people do not objectify disease and that they don't, you know, that they don't treat people who are sick as though they, they are sick for moral failing reasons or, you know, that they, is like one of the signature improvements of our, of our age. And uh, this effort to sort of politicize COVID um, is a, is a real step backward in, into uh, a human tendency that is actually kind of barbaric um, because it says, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it, it does something wrong. And of course, uh, yes, 9-11 was a, was a, was an event of entire agency. Uh, people get sick and die from disease because disease is relentless, remorseless, and doesn't have a, it doesn't have a purpose. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's it's nature attacking us in some fashion or other, and that of course is the opposite of what something like nine eleven is, and what the notion that you have to defend yourself and protect yourself against uh, that is something that means you can you can isolate it to men or you know men and women behaving in a certain way whose behavior can be counteracted by counter behavior. Now, obviously, there are things you can do with diseases to counteract them, like, you know, wear a mask or, you know, if you don't want to get lung cancer, you can not smoke. But, of course, you can also smoke and never get lung cancer. Uh, smoking only increases risk. And so, you know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy way to both uh, kind of put something like 9-11 in the rearview mirror and pretend that it didn't really matter and it's an easy way to uh, to raise uh, COVID by you know to to a to a level where it is um, a, a condition unlike anything else that has ever happened, and that therefore anybody who didn't act in the proper way in the early going in the political sphere um, is a you know is a manifester of of evil. Abe, you got any thoughts here? Yeah, I just keep thinking that um, I remember that just for the ye- for years throughout the throughout the Iraq War, um, those who opposed it would constantly compare the nine eleven um, death toll here to what what was happening at any given moment in Iraq. Like, you know, you think imagine if our nine eleven was fivefold what it was or tenfold what it was. that's what the people are suffering so it's it's been it's been used um um in this very i don't know creepy um unfeeling um political way as a as a as a measure as a statistic for for a while now 
You know, it's 19 years since 9-11, and the, the, the unanswerable, because there's no way of judging it in history, is was the American response a horrible failure or, a, or an extraordinary success that our political culture does not wish us to accept? By which I mean either 9-11 was a lucky one-off strike p- perpetrated by this terrorist group that had this one sort of fiendish idea that they actually managed to execute uh, as opposed to the kinds of, uh, you know, uh, boneheaded or preposterous schemes that others had attempted before them and that they, they pulled it off and it was an amazing coup of some sort, but it was never going to be duplicated. Like it was, a, it was, it was, it was sheer luck and that we overreacted. We overreacted. We went to war in Afghanistan. We went to war in Iraq uh, we got ourselves tied down, you know, we spent trillions of dollars, uh, a lot of people got killed, a lot of people got injured, or was the American response, did the American response end, uh, kill off at the very beginning the ter- the wave of terrorist attacks that were going to overwhelm the United States? And had we not reacted as we reacted would the last the story of the last twenty years have been that the U.S. would have been like um, London or or Britain during the Troubles with Northern Ireland, like thir- twenty years of domestic, you know, in- terrorist attacks inside the country constantly that we were incapable of answering? We well, don't we, have an answer to that question, but well, we, we never take do. up this. You know, go ahead. We, we do a little bit, right? We do know of some plots that, that we're actively attempting to do that Richard Reeves with the, with the shoe bomber. There, there were certainly, and even more recently, we've, we've seen infiltration by into yeah, um, military facilities, bringing, you know, the Saudi Arabian folks who were allowed to come train in a military base and then shot people up. You know, there have been little things here and there that have gone public. What we don't know, because we shouldn't, because because it's, you know, national intelligence are all of the plots that were thwarted before they even came to fruition. But there have been every year one or two instances that do become public that were clearly motivated terrorist attacks. They weren't necessarily as well planned, well executed, well funded um, as 9-11. But I think actually the response uh, has prevented more bloodshed. Now, that's a separate issue from um, the Iraq war, which I think should be kind of set aside and, and debated on different terms. But yeah, I think I think you can actually say with some confidence that the the response did uh, probably protect more American lives in the long term. But those successful events, when they occurred, most of which actually happened uh, during the Obama presidency, um, were uh, not exogenous. They were indigenous, right? They were people who were self radicalized or radicalized right, for the most part. Yeah. Um, and you know, the comparison to the troubles in the United States isn't post nine eleven, but the late 1960s, early 1970s, when there were bombs going off multiple times per week uh, over the... And and you read about it. I was not alive, fortunately, during this period, and read about it, and it is absolutely impossible to imagine 400 bombings over the course of a month, which was yeah. what you lived through, John, somehow. Yeah, well, as a, <laughs> as a little kid, yeah. I mean, that's true, but of course, there there's a continuum... Uh, between the self-radicalization inside the United States and the and the uh, and the the foreign influence that is uh, often too little remarked upon. I mean, um, was the Boston Marathon bombing was that an act of domestic self-radicalized terrorism, or was it an act of global Islamist? It's foreign recruitment. Terrorism. I mean, Elon Omar's congressional district is ground zero for efforts to recruit 
American citizens into foreign, you know, into jihadi activities. I mean, we know this. It's been studied and reported on for years. So, yeah, right. but that, that is foreign influence. I, I would count that as yeah. outside right. terrorist groups. Yeah, yeah, and, and, uh, and of course, um, uh, the, the Pulse Bomber. Um, I mean, the self-radicalized cases, the, the San Bernardino uh, 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 bomber, uh, some of these weird marriages, these, these uh, marriages that involved uh, Americans marrying foreign nationals who then came here and plotted uh, terrorist attacks. So this notion that we can so, so quite so easily bifurcate, um, you know, Islamist terrorism from domestic terrorism is a, is a, is it isn't so simple? What I mean when I say that um, that we 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 will never be able to quantify uh, the 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 power of the result is that um, the United States woke up right in on nine eleven or you know in the in the hours after the the towers fell and moved the way the United States moved, which is like a big lumbering you know elephant. And it, it's not, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, pretty and it wasn't uh, delicate and it wasn't sophisticated. We went in and we smashed the Taliban in Afghanistan and eventually went in and smashed the, the regime, the Hussein regime in Iraq. And we uh, changed a lot of the laws um, in ways domestically, particularly in relation to Homeland Security, that ended up having a kind of bludgeon and uh, cudgel effect um, where, you know, arguments took place over how much you could do and wh- how much wiretapping you could do and w- all that stuff. Um, because when a nation awakes to a war, uh, it, it, it tends not to not to deal with the niceties all that well, necessarily. What we don't know is we're now looking in in September of 2020 at a potentially changed Middle East of a sort that we have been hoping for for seven decades in which uh, Sunni Arab countries are making their peace with the existence of Israel, are stopping the kind of global war with Israel because they are now seeing themselves having a common enemy in Iran. And, uh, and is that one of the re is that one of the results of the last 20 totally. years? Yeah. Hey, totally. I mean, I mean, also I think it's interesting. It's interesting to also consider our response to nine 11 and everything that followed it in terms of um, if you take the attacks as a, geopolitical gambit on the part of um uh al-qaeda and and jihadists how how they didn't get what they wanted right you know if you these many years later if the point was to um to cut off uh the the american saudi relationship um it's it's deeper than ever we actually have troops back there if it's to if it was to cut off support american support for israel um not only is is that actually str- as strong as it's ever been, if not stronger, but now there there is local Sunni uh, Muslim support uh, or or uh, normalization of ties with Israel as well. So, as a if you you know just consider it as a sort of geopolitical um, show of power, if you will, on the part of Al Qaeda, it's a spectacular failure these many decades later, and I think it you can trace it all back to a kind of zigzagging 
um, effect that's, that began with the attacks because we went to war. Then uh, there was a, the, as the war went bad, there was a backlash, which, which brought Obama into power. Uh, and then Obama uh, enacted all these sort of anti-Bush type policies in the Middle East, uh, namely um, uh, working, um, uh, putting daylight between the U.S. and Israel um, and trying to um, uh, rehabilitate Iran. Um, uh, in response to that, now Trump has has done the opposite. And, and, and you know, here we are. So in a sense, you know, I, I, I and I was thinking about this this morning. I do often fairly or not see the 9-11 attacks as sort of the first um i don't want to say domino because that 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 implies that everything falls but but as the first sort of um like the the first event of the age that we still live in in a way um a because it was it was the scale of because things of that yeah. scale then sort of, you know, have continued right. in some sense and, and right. you can draw a connecting line between right. them all. Yeah. Well, look, the most misunderstood essay book of our time was uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man, um, because people think that uh, Frank was, you know, welcoming the end of history, which he was not. What he was saying was that in the wake of the, of the uh, collapse of the communist model, or the Soviet model, there was no uh, suitable plot line, storyline, uh, tale, counter tale to, uh, to the success of the West and Western democratic bourgeois institutions and all of that. And that th- this was a gap that was in the, is going to end up being filled. That's actually the conclusion of the book that the, the hunger for recognition, what he called the thymotic urge, the hunger to be, to have yourself paid attention to would be, would come out in ways over the coming years or decades, uh, that were, were not knowable, but would certainly fill this space that the counter story provided by Marxism, Leninism provided. And that happened with a vengeance with, with, uh, Islamism. And uh, and you could also say is now happening with the vengeance with Chinese, whatever you want to call the Chinese experiment, this bizarre melange of uh, mercantilism, communism, you know, totalitarianism and uh, and, and free markets. Um, and so there are these alternating plot lines. And I will say this one thing about 9-11. So... Uh, Al Qaeda arises, does what it does. Um, we spend night, finally we kill, you know, uh, bin Laden is killed. Al Qaeda is rousted. It's safe haven in, in Afghanistan is removed. Um, and then the Islamists then needed a, a new strategy, right? So they came up with ISIS. So now instead of being, you know, terrorism, statelessness and like hiding in the shadows, they would actually take over territory and run it according to uh, caliphate principles. And because we had become so hair-trigger sensitive to the meaning of the rise of uh, Islamist ambition, it, it didn't take a lot for the United States to wake up to the danger posed by ISIS. It was 
three or four or five horrible killings and 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 slaughters that kind of led to our Obama's you know decision to go like to to say you know that this cannot be allowed to continue in the absence what I'm sorry I got to completely disagree with that um by the by the time that Obama and the country had awoken to this as a result of the beheadings of Americans. ISIS had taken over a, a territory the size of Colorado and had, yeah, executed yeah, what long- you, and had executed what you said, which was the only alternative theory of social organization that exists today. I don't think China represents that at all. Uh, that, that is the ISIS caliphate, the idea of, of how to create a completely alternative model of how society should organize and operate. And I would submit that to the extent that we're witnessing the rise of one right now in the form of wokeism, actually, which is a completely alternative theory of social organization than the one to which we subscribe. China doesn't represent that. Africa doesn't represent that. Eastern Europe doesn't represent that. Latin America doesn't represent that. ISIS is the only alternative theory. And it did take us a long time to, to wake up to the threat that that represented. How much time elapsed between the between Obama's remark that ISIS was the JV team to when he actually his administration did anything about ISIS? I'm just curious. I want. Right. I think it was a year. I think it was okay. something like a year. And I I, I want to defend my remarks because of course I, I don't think that Obama took it with the requisite seriousness. The polling in 2013 said there should be no American involvement in the Middle East anymore. Like 60% of people were basically around where Rand Paul was. That was why Rand Paul was thought to be a serious candidate for president in his isolationism in 2013. And then uh, Kayla Mueller and uh, James Foley and uh, I'm sorry that I can't remember the the third uh, journalist who was who was right, I believe, right. Um, uh, and three killings, and uh, granted, like horrifically dis- horrible things happened, and the American people flipped on a dime, on a dime, 60% opposed, 60% in favor of destroying ISIS in a month. I mean, that's what I mean. I'm not talking about the political system. I mean, the American people were remained aware of the danger that was put once Americans were targeted by ISIS specifically, the idea that ISIS could not stand became an American axiom. That's what I mean by the mindset changing and that, and that uh, there is no way on earth that we would have engaged seriously or that Obama would have engaged seriously in any effort to go at ISIS had American public opinion not remained sensitive to the dangers posed by Islamist uh, ambition. Those were the conditions that precipitated a re, uh, reintroduction of troops into Iraq and the, and the intervention into that conflict. But a testament to American goodness is that those weren't the Casas Belli. It wasn't a revenge war. Right. Being reengaged as a result of the immediate direct threat of genocide represented uh, or posed to the uh, Yazidi people. Well, that's that, that true. And Americans being killed for being Americans. And again, but we like, didn't go there as a result of it wasn't an explicit revenge act. There wasn't there no, wasn't but, a hostage rescue situation or an no, effort. But I'm to saying American them. public opinion right. changed. Yeah. That's what facilitated the minute, the right. Sure. But American public opinion changed because Americans remained aware of the danger posed to them by, as I say, by Islamist global Islamist ambition, which in the end they could not restrain themselves. 
ISIS. I mean, if you think about it, it was an unbelievably boneheaded thing to do to to take these Americans and slaughter them. Uh, because if they had just left America alone, America would have left them alone is the likeliest of stories. And they couldn't bear to. They couldn't allow themselves to because they are who they are and uh, such is life. Um, so let's, uh, I wanted to float something to you guys from, again, uh, Mark Halperin's invaluable daily uh, email that I really do commend to everybody uh, called Wide World of News, if you want to Google it, uh, comes every morning. And uh, uh, Mark, I, I, I point this out because in like October of 2015 or something like that, uh, Halpert was somebody I know. I was on this t- TV show of his that was on Bloomberg, and he said to me, what do you think of Trump? And I was like, yeah, come on, it's sort of ridiculous. And he was like, I don't know. Look, I've been out there. I've been at these... It's just there's a different energy. I don't see how anybody is going to stop him. Hmm. And so, uh, and this was early. This was like October or November of 2015. So I, I take him very seriously as a as a watcher. And he has said for for months that uh, Trump was going down the tubes. He couldn't win. He couldn't win. Uh, you know the the day's news cycle ever. And he was always on the defensive. And yesterday he discerned green shoots of hope for the Trump campaign. And so I wanted to, um, I wanted to float this by you and see what you guys think. Uh, he writes, uh, if over the last 16 hours you scrolled through red Twitter or perused red blogs or listened to red radio or watched red cable TV, the momentum is as hot as a bottle feeling was there for the consuming. Uh, to be clear, I'm not saying Trump is going to win or that there is any actually any momentum whatsoever evidenced in these developments or that these things are going bad. What I'm saying is that if you only consume Blue View material, you are likely oblivious to all this. And Team Trump is stoked by Thursday as compared to the rest of the week, which has led to greater confidence and less Atlantic-y, Woodward-y dejection. And three, that a Trump win would require some of these shoots to grow very quickly into Mighty Oaks, which is not impossible. And he mentions... Trump uh, honing and sharpening his attack at a rally in Michigan yesterday, uh, calling uh, Biden a Washington vulture, um, uh, saying that, you know, he supported uh, every trade deal that ruined uh, Michigan and uh, and uh, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA and all of that. Okay, so that's one. The second is uh, an afternoon press conference uh, where he says, Joe's decision to publicly attack the Chinamen proved he lacks the character, intelligence, or instinct to do what is right. Now Biden's launched a public campaign against the vaccine, which is so bad because we have some vaccines coming that are incredible. And uh, those are some basically the two. And then this meltdown that Biden spokesman T.J. Ducklow had with Brett Baer on Brett Baer's Fox News show, where Brett Baer said... How are your how are your uh, policies different from, uh, you know, it has Biden used a teleprompter in the basement or something like that. And then Ducklow says a Brett Bayer who has the, you know, I would say easily the cleanest show, not only on Fox, but pretty much on, on cable, saying that he was a you know, mouthpiece for the Trump campaign, like had this preposterous, embarrassing meltdown. Um, so that's the that's basically the. Well, and the real the real moment of that interview, more. yeah, they couldn't oh, yeah, he could ahead. not 
Biden could not, Biden's spokesperson could not answer the question, what would Biden have done differently with regard to COVID? What right. would he have done that Trump yeah. didn't, did or didn't do? Yeah. Right. So um, it's pretty clear at this point that the press has done the Biden campaign zero favors by treating them so favorably. Um, Joe Biden took a, had a press conference the other day and he was asked by reporters a series of questions, all of which were embarrassingly soft. Um, and he sat down with Jake Tapper yesterday for a hard news interview. And he was going back and forth over NAFTA. And Tapper's premise was, look, you said you were going to renegotiate NAFTA. You didn't. Donald Trump did. Does he deserve any credit for it? And Biden flailed for a long time about how, you know, it's just, just a gift to, to lawyers and pharmaceutical companies and what have you. And, and Tapper went back to the premise and said, yeah, but they negotiated it. It's better. Don't they deserve credit for it? And he says, yeah, it's Biden says, yeah, it's better. But and then goes off again on this little tangent. And it was very unconvincing. Now, I know the answer that he was supposed to give. The answer that he's supposed to give is, yeah, he renegotiated NAFTA. He, Biden said, yeah, but we couldn't do it because we had a Republican Congress. That's close to the answer that you're supposed to give as a Democrat. The Democratic answer is, yeah, we did all that in TPP. We negotiated TPP. TPP was the renegotiated NAFTA. Republicans wouldn't let it pass in 2016. That's the Biden answer. He didn't know his own answer to his question, which is a really bad sign. If he's not prepped on that sort of basic stuff, really basic talking points, then the debates aren't going to be very pretty. All right, uh, let's let me pull back. We'll get back to this, but I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, Gabby Insurance, because when you've had the same car insurance or homeowners insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. That makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. So stop overpaying for car and homeowners insurance. See about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have, thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Gabby's customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings like they did for so many others, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate out there, and they'll never sell your info, so no annoying, annoying, bleh. excuse me, so no annoying spam or robocalls. No annoying is not a good um, two words together, turns out. So no annoying spam or robocalls from Gabby Insurance. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash commentary. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash commentary. Gabby.com slash commentary. Um, so the green shoots that uh, Mark uh, Halperin discerns uh, sharpened message, uh, Biden uh, not being able to answer uh, questions clearly, um, even even ones that are sort of that he should have the answers to, all of that. Uh, is he on to something? Abe, you, you, I don't know. You, believe, you believe that this race is closer than some of us do and that, you know, you can't quite, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a different mind space in relation to this election than... I believe I believe that it could be closer than than um, than we seem to think, but um, it's hard to see those those green shoots when compared to um, the perpetual bombardment that Trump has endured over the same time. I mean, it, it, he's he's been he's been on the defensive now from a bunch of you know sort of uh, press hits and 
um, that have then been picked up by the by the Biden campaign. There's a, I mean, he's not really he's been respond he's been responding to um, a, a a landscape that's being shaped to destroy him now for for a couple weeks here. You know, he's not he was he was sort of calling the shots. Um, and I think he was doing better when he when he was when he when he when he was, you know, sort of um, putting pressure on Biden to to respond to 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 what he was saying and doing um, when he was was very much um, or very much for him on point about on message about violence in the cities and whatnot and and revealing that as a lapse in the the Biden tickets um, rhetoric. Uh, that that seems to have passed, actually, and and it's what Trump has been consumed with lately is defending or denying what he may have said and um, done uh, in response to the the veterans and to the virus and whatnot. Can I uh, can I propose a theory about the Atlantic story that began the uh, Trump getting rocked on his heels and yeah. knocked off the the uh, urban unrest? narrative that he was, you know, hitting so hard. So uh, there are these details, right? This story uh, about him saying suckers and losers about the war dead. And what if, and it's an old story. So uh, uh, what if that were the late hit? Follow this. So the classic thing is, right, in campaigns, Last week before the campaign, you save you save something that you then drop like a bomb on the head of your rival to see if you can depress their vote and 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 get people to move away from them. The most successful, again, being the Bush DUI uh, revealed uh, in the last week of the twenty six uh, of the two thousand election that uh, many people think basically led to the Florida you know stalemate and all of that. Um. So the Democrats have been uh, have been pointedly pushing for early voting, mail-in voting, absentee voting all year, and uh, and so there is going to be apparently a, a, a huge amount of it. Though you know, I don't think it's going to be get, get to fifty percent, but you know, let's say it's thirty percent or forty percent. And people are like, "Well, why did this story come out now? Why did it come out? You know, September, whatever." Okay, in the world of early voting and absentee voting and mail-in voting. September 1st is the late hit. That's when you need to start delivering the late hit. And so there's this whole thing of why did this happen now? Well, it happened now because this is the season of the late hit. And so, uh, and it worked. Um, uh, a story to which the only answer is either it didn't happen, which some version of it probably did, even if it's, being misreported in some fashion or other. I mean, obviously, it sounds like Trump in some fashion. Um, and then the Woodward book, which also, uh, in a fortuitously timed way, comes out just as early voting is is starting. So, um, so it worked. Like uh, this, the the story of the last two weeks of August was the uh, urban unrest, and was Biden going to respond? And how was Trump responding? Was it going to change the polls and all of that? Even though it purely didn't really do so all that much. And now we're now we're talking about something else. So uh, Halperin discerns 
green shoots because Trump is sharpening his economic message in the Rust Belt, and that's where he needs to win to prevail. But I don't know. That's, that's- I don't. I, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure because I just. Well, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in this president's competence politically. So he goes out yesterday. If he's sharpening his message, this is his message. So let's say this is all late hit stuff, right? And John, you said a couple of weeks ago that, you know, what if he had held this Hunter Biden stuff, you know, for for September, October? So the president calls a press conference yesterday, the the entire point of which, I, as I can discern, was to issue this broadside against Joe Biden from the White House briefing room, which is probably not the best setting for something like this. But over the course of this broadside, then he drops this bomb about how Hunter Biden, quote, facilitated the sale of a Michigan auto parts producer to a leading Chinese military defense contractor and goes off and says, if, you know, if the Biden family get, you know, if Joe Biden gets elected, then they will, China will own America. And he, but he did so with the most, the least amount of energy you can possibly summon to issue that kind of attack. It was rote. And he was reading off a a card and just it it was not it was destined not to stick because he didn't have any energy behind it, which suggests he doesn't believe any of this stuff. Right. If he was really energized about all this, if he really thought this was a profound threat to not just his political career, but the economic foundations of Michigan and the upper Midwest, uh, then you, you would summon some passion behind that sort of attack. And that passion would be would the, the political culture would respond to it. But nobody even noticed it. I haven't seen even conservative media pick up this thread and pull on it um, because it's it's just he's throwing stuff at the wall now. So if that's his, him sharpening his economic message honed and, and laser focused on the upper Midwest, I, I don't see it landing. Well, it's one day, though. It's one day, and um, yeah, but it's one day in mid to late September. Well, it's one day. It's September eleventh. I mean, if he—that's he, a long time. I mean, you know, it's it's seven and a half weeks till the election. That's there's a lot of time for these messages well, to land. The the other thing is, I think there is an opening for the Trump campaign if he can hone his message on China, particularly during the debates, because Biden has not been great on China. I mean, his responses to direct questions about how his administration would handle China have been all over the map and similar to his responses about, you know, how he would have renegotiated NAFTA and his non-responses to COVID. So that's just not what gets him out of bed in the morning. Yeah, he, he doesn't get energized about the political... Uh, line of the day or, or even public policy, what gets him energized is personal effrontery. That's where he's really passionate. Trump, and that's Trump where the conservative movement is. Yeah. And that's where the conservative yeah. movement responds to that passion because it responds to any passion from a politician. But again, so when you the see- thing that he needs is not the conservative movement anymore. I mean, I think they understand this. That's why when they talk about when uh, Bill Stepien and Ronna uh, McDaniel and the, the people who are sort of at the top of the Republican Party want to talk about how, yes, they're very much in the game, they talk about how their mechanics involve getting involves fantastic getting out the vote. They are working it everywhere. They're they door knocking, by right? People. That was the story. They're out there what? knocking on doors. They're, they're, yeah, they're knocking on doors. They're the Democrats doing all aren't. this and the Democrats aren't doing anything. And they're just, they're, they're crushing it in the get out the vote. Well, if they're crushing it in the get out the vote, that by definition means that that's beyond uh, making sure that the base is going out to vote. They are trying to reach people 
who haven't made up their minds yet or who are on the fence or who ordinarily wouldn't vote. And that's what you do that for. You don't do that to make sure that you're, you don't need to ring a doorbell of a Trump voter. You have to ring the doorbell of an undecided voter or a non-voter that so, and this is an interesting point that Nate Cohn of the New York times made the other day about polling. He said, there's all this talk about a shy Tory vote. But that is not, even if you imagine that the shy Tory vote, people who won't talk to, won't tell pollsters what they think because they're scared of the ramifications, either being, you know, being thought of ill by the pollster or because they're now literally explicitly afraid of being found out as Trump voters and getting punished at work. And there was this astounding thing that uh, we, we saw yesterday, not about work, but I, it was either a high, a high school or a college where uh, kids were supposed to answer uh, Christine, what was the story again? Kids are supposed to answer so a, a, public, a public magnet school in San Francisco called the right. Lowell School gave kids what they called an, uh, a pre-screening for their views on anti-racism. And every single question ob- had the obvious ideological answer. But the kids were required. The thing that was unusual about this is that they were required to identify themselves. Their answers weren't anonymous. So somewhere the school would have some sort of evidence of their feelings about anti-racism. And literally the first question was, which is it, which of the following is an anti-racist statement? One, um, I don't see color. Two, I noticed that black students are being treated unfairly in the dress code and I need to report that to an administration official. And I think the third one was all lives matter. So which answer do you think they were looking for? And which one do you think the high school student is going to pick if they're at all right. savvy about our current okay. ideological climate? <laughs> Okay, so I brought this up only to say that this is this is uh, this put puts meat on the bones of the general attitudes around that might cause people, uh, particularly if they work in workplaces where they're being given diversity training and all of that, to 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 lie to pollsters. But as Cohn says, even if you enumerate that, like you look and you say this number could be huge, it really isn't. It can't be that big, given the scale of Biden's lead not only in, you know, nationally, which is seven and a half points, but in the Rust Belt states where it's it's just outside the margin of error. Like it's, you know, it's four, four and a half, something like that. He says the place to look is to the non-voters. And by, by what he means by that are the people who will not answer, don't answer the phone, will refuse to have anything to do with any kind of expert, will not take a phone call from, uh, anyone whose number they don't recognize. Not that, by the way, I will answer phone calls from numbers. I, I don't do, I barely do that anymore myself. And, I, you know, I, but, um, and I think a lot of us are like that. But that the people who are so anti-institutional and hostile to all this are the people who will never talk to a pollster. It's not that they're going to lie to a pollster. It's that they will, it's that they are, they are invisible to pollsters. And could there be millions of them? Maybe. I mean, it seems highly unlikely. Um, and polling attempts to correct for that by oversampling, by by taking people who are like them and, and oversampling them or boosting their numbers as they, you know, in a formula in order to capture what they think is more likely to be the population, the demographic population's response to this. But that that's an interesting angle that I haven't like thought the, of. Um, 
for Trump, though, that's a it's a it's that they mean to vote, and they might even be voters. It's not that they're not that's they're non-voter. They are non-responsive to efforts to measure voters. Well, no, but that's what I'm saying. so for for Trump, though, that's that he's got to target this sort of Goldilocks contingency there because if they're so checked out and anti-establishment, um, they may not vote and and participate at all. Um, they have to be sort of, you know, under the radar enough that that when it comes to non-Trump parties, they are invisible, but engaged enough that they that they believe that Trump is uh, their, their, somehow their anti-establishment guy. There was a, a Bloomberg piece that got some traction the other day that was writing up a survey that found a surprising number, low, low, high single digits, low double digits of uh, respondents lie to pollsters, which leads you to a uh, sort of an existential quandary. If we're polling people who lie to pollsters, who tell pollsters that they're lying to pollsters, are they lying about lying to pollsters? How do we explore this? Uh, it's the Star Trek episode where the robots <laughs> are forced into the liar's paradox and literally they blow up. <laughs> <laughs> if you lie, yeah, then you cannot be telling the sparking. truth. But if, yeah, that's right. Norman <laughs> compute, and then the then their spark, and then their heads heads blow up. The liar's paradox is one of the great things. Yeah. So how on earth can you possibly quantify that? And it is talk about like a hail mary play, or like you know uh, trying to draw to an inside straight, trying to appeal to people that you know exist and that have the same matching demographic qualities as people who like you, and then trying to then figure out how to pull them to the polls right. is, uh, is, no, is no small task, <laughs> let's just say. Although you can say that Obama did it in 2012. I mean, you know, remember, he lost 4 million votes, but he, he also still had a, But he also had a far more sophisticated digital tracking operation that could, it, it, using alternative methods, identify those people and reach out to them. I mean, that that's where yeah. the digital operation he was running, which was, let's all recall, crafted and devised by the one of the founders of Facebook. And, and you know, he, he knew what he was doing there. I mean, I think that that... Um, that counts, and I don't see the Trump operation being quite so uh, ahead of the game on that. He's being outraised by $100 million, yes. which is a bad sign. Um, yes. 100, matters, turnout matters. But, $150 million. But, but we all agree that 2012 turned into a referendum on the challenger and not the incumbent. And as long as the president is talking about himself and his response, in this environment, voters can't possibly want to reward that. You would think. Um, and, and, uh, so the question is, that's why I think, uh, Halperin's, uh, green shoots analogy is, is a, is a good one because, uh, this is only, uh, you know, a, a very nascent possibility, uh, if he is right that, uh, Trump, Trump's message yesterday, which I, I will confess I saw none of because I didn't watch any of it yesterday. So I'm only going by, you know, what he is quoting and reporting. Uh, if he is finding a sweet spot that has heretofore eluded him, um, you know, that has to be cultivated. He's going to have he's going to have to irrigate that field. He's going to have to, you know, make sure that bull weevils don't come in and eat up the green shoot. He's going to have to he's going to have to see the acorn, as he said, grow into a mighty oak pretty fast. 
Um, and that's, I guess, where Noah's, this question about Noah's uh, question about his uh, discipline comes in because that requires discipline. That requires uh, staying on message. You know, the famous Bush uh, uh, 2000 thing where basically Bush said the same four things over and over and over and over and over and over again until you couldn't imagine. Anyone's Noah's been on book tour. I've been on book tour. You know, you when you when you go to like sell something, they tell you, you know, say the same thing over and over again and you get bored saying it and then you start saying other things and then you lose the thread and you say things in the wrong way and don't it, the thing that is a good way to sell it, you stop using because you're too bored by it. So Trump and Trump gets bored in the middle of a sentence that he's already speaking. He, but he the worst works. thing about book tour, which is Donald Trump's problem, is the the real line that sells the book. You didn't write. They wrote it. And you're not even really that that into it. Like it just yeah. I mean, it maybe it's a catchy elevator pitch, but it's just it doesn't sell the book in the way you would sell the book. And Donald yeah. Trump is speaking lines that are written for him and he's just not into it. Well, it's when he edits them, the first person I ever noticed to do this was like Bob Bob Dole. So Bob Dole would like read some line from a speech and then he would he would attack the line in his own speech. Like he would say, you know, you know, we will never allow. And then he'd say, like, that's a five dollar word. Here's what we're going to do like that. <laughs> he would criticize his own speech while he was speechwriters wept. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's like uh, it's like the great Charles Barkley, you know, when Charles Barkley denounced his own autobiography. That was, you know, in 1993 or 1994, one of the great moments of all time. Who wrote this? You know, it's like you did, you idiot. Uh, I got another good story for you. I'm just going to tell Lucianne Goldberg uh, told me this story cuz she ghost wrote uh, a novel by um, Maureen Dean, the wife of John Dean, uh, uh, you know, like a Washington potboiler novel that she ghost wrote. And, uh, you know, uh, the book was, they printed 50,000 copies and Maureen Dean went on the Today Show to introduce, to inaugurate the sales of the book. And uh, to her great uh, sorrow, uh, eventual sorrow, Maureen Dean, um, the... I don't know who was Barbara Walters or Jane Pauley or somebody on the Today Show read a lot of the book and started asking her questions about it, at which point it became clear that Maureen Dean hadn't read the book that had her own byline on it. And it was this like legendarily horrible appearance and they sort of basically canceled the book tour. And that was the end of that book. But Lucienne got paid. Lucienne got got her, you know. She there was, there was no skin off her nose. Anyway, that's one of my favorite ghostwriter stories. Uh, speaking as somebody who has done some ghostwriting in my life, um, anybody have any recommendations for the weekend? Fun things for people to do. I got one. Don't go see Tenet. That's my that's my recommendation to you. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you to go to a movie theater. I went to. I drove to New Jersey. I drove to Elizabeth, New Jersey, to see Tenet. And uh, it's not good. Oh, you no. can look at my review if you want to. Uh, I need recommendations because I, I'm in mourning now that I've finished Cobra Kai in season three, which they tell me is is already like ready to go. Is not being released till next year. So you guys, HBO Go me. has uh, a new streaming show which is uh, based on the sci-fi novels. I'm blocking on the author's name. 
Um, but it's very good. It's uh, directed by Ridley Scott, who I adore. Raised by wolves. So, raised by wolves. It's, it grabs you by the lapels in the first episode and doesn't let you go. And uh, they're, it just started, so who knows? It's streaming, and it's also very good. And am, the second season of Amazon's The Boys, which is a very entertaining program. But um, incredibly I can't violent. That. But it's incredibly, incredibly violent. But incredibly very violent. clever. So very clever. If you can't take violence, don't even bother because it is. But if you can't take violence, you're not an American. This is how we entertain ourselves. (laughs) Sorry. But if you can take violence, and uh, this is something uh, Noah and I just recommended highly to Abe and Christine. Again, HBO Max or HBO or whatever. Rome, the HBO series, which I think is now close to 20 years old, two seasons about... uh, uh, Rome around the time of the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar about two um, uh, soldiers who returned to Rome after uh, being off in the, uh, in the wars in Egypt. And it is fantastic. And it's dirty. The Gallic Wars. returned from the Gallic Wars. From the Gallic Wars. I'm and sorry. They, that's right. And they end up going right. the second season. They go to Egypt. That's the right. Um, but uh, it is the first season in particular is fantastic. It's the greatest set that was ever built for television. This recreation of ancient Rome, which is kind of staggering, fantastic acting, uh, just 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 great. So if you never saw it, uh, that is one of the two great HBO shows that people haven't seen. That's one. And again, also the first season better than the others is Deadwood, the western about the you know the the the, the town without law uh and uh, uh the prehistory of, of chaz chop right that's, yeah, that's right yeah <laughs> it, it, it falls apart after in some ways after the first season certainly after the second third season is terrible but hey um, as long as we're uh the, yeah the third season it, is it, not HBO terrible what an, what an insult i'm sorry the third season is better than the second season. You know what? You're right. The third and, then, and then they the just summari- summarily canceled the show in the middle of a narrative, and then yeah. the sets burned out. Right. We're talking, exactly. we're talking about Deadwood. Yeah. I got yeah. the second all season was bad in the third season. Okay. I mean, I like I liked it all, but um, but as long as we're praising HBO, I have been watching. I think there have only been three installments so far. Their documentary on the Nixium, however, however one pronounces it, cult uh, that eventually. What's that? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> our, our, but our listeners should know that we we send like a like a child into the wilderness. Abe somehow has ended up being the podcast member who's sent to watch these kind of horrific documentaries of terrible. Like Jeffrey, he watched he loves them. Jeffrey. He loves I know, them. but I I appreciate the service he is he is performing for the rest of us. Well, yeah. No. So this is quite good. Um, it's called the Vow. Yeah, and um, it goes into you know who's not interested in in cults and how they actually can end up controlling people and convincing people and the kind of personalities behind these things are um, amazing and there's tons and tons of footage of their of the leader talking and and sort of you know spouting and and you, there's a very good mechanical breakdown of how it all went down. Uh, also, who doesn't love you- a good sex cult? Also, if you like if you like a documentary, um, uh, Netflix has this uh, uh, two part or three part I can't remember documentary about um, Frank Sinatra that uh, features our own Terry Teachout, our critic at large, as one of the 
key critical voices uh, in, in telling the life story of America's greatest singer. So um, there's that also also to watch. But uh, tragically, um, yes, the movie that was supposed to re was supposed to reintroduce Americans to movie theaters if they could go is incomprehensible, unwatchable, and indecipherable. Aside from that, it's great though. So you should you should only only enjoy. And I, with that, we will um, bid you uh, a, a, a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you on Monday for Abe, Noah, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camera burning.